This is our monthly member bonus episode. Very exciting, because I have a feeling there are some people here who are listening to this show who might not normally get this show. Do you know what I mean? It's a secret. Oh, I know what you mean. I know. Yeah, our month. Well, I I, I hope it's not a secret. I'd like to think that our membership <laughs> is not a secret, but it's less a secret. <laughs> it's right. But yes, this is our monthly member bonus episode, which goes out to members. However, we are releasing this one to you, the public, because uh, you know we want you to be aware that we do have a membership program, and we'd love you to uh, consider uh, being a part of it to support the show, to get all sorts of extra stuff, and uh, you know, get in on all sorts of extra movie conversations. Pete, what do members get? That's a great question, Andy. Members get early access to the show. They get to join us for live streams of the episodes. They can jump in and and join our Discord server and get access to all kinds of uh, triple secret uh, channels that that the public doesn't get. The other thing to just know is that the the member part, I, you have a lot of choices with your entertainment dollars, but just know that as potentially one of the targets of your membership dollars, we greatly appreciate it. Like this is how we pay for our shoes and food on the table. And th- this is our this is our job. And we are incredibly grateful to those of you who've chosen already to support this show uh, by becoming a supporting member. And it, it is the most valuable thing that that we have as a network is is our member community. So uh, our incredible thanks. We hope you'll consider it. We hope you'll consider doing this to help support us and our and our livelihoods. If you if you like entertainment podcasting, um, you know, we we just really are, are grateful for your consideration there. So absolutely. You can learn more about it at the slash membership. And uh, it's five dollars a month or you can just pay in an annual lump sum of 60 bucks a year. Either way, you get all of that stuff and uh, you get in on all the wonderful conversation and our eternal gratitude. So anyway, here's the episode. Enjoy our conversation about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, part one. I'm Beat Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, part one is over. IMF, International Monetary Fund? Our lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You have no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. (laughs) Andy, I've been waiting seven movies for an IMF International Monetary Fund joke, and they finally got it in. Cheeky. They finally managed to squeeze that one in there. So cheeky. Yeah. This, you know, I've got to say, I didn't realize that I didn't know what Dead Reckoning meant until I actually started watching this movie. And somebody said it, and I'm like, wait a minute, what does Dead Reckoning mean? Okay, so explain it. 
Do you know? Did you know? No, I have no idea. No. I don't know what you're talking about. Dead Reckoning is a navigational tool to calculate uh, a position of a moving object by using its previously determined position, like where it had been, along with its speed, heading, and how much time. So if you know submarine stuff. where something is going, uh, submarine stuff, exactly. <laughs> it all kind of ties in. I had no idea. It's just, it was such a cool title that I didn't realize that I didn't actually know what it meant. I just hear like, it's a reckoning. It's a dead reckoning. It just yeah. sounded, you know, serious. But uh, no, it actually relates to the whole submarine scene at the beginning of the movie. That's really interesting. Totally relates. Okay. All right. Well, so now we have submarines at the beginning of the movie. First time we've opened on a submarine in a Mission Impossible. And we should say, for those who are just coming to this episode, uh, especially, um, I, I guess we, we should say aloud, this episode is our member bonus. It's also being released to the public because it's our annual uh, dual release cycle. We're just so excited and, and hope members, people who are not listening yet, will join us. We also just finished our Mission Impossible series as a part of our last season. And so this kind of tags on to that. So we have now watched all six of the movies and we come with some of that baggage. Yeah, and actually, can I can I start there as a as a point with this? And also, we should just say, yeah, this is likely going to be a pretty spoilery conversation. So if you haven't yes. seen the movie yet, I mean, it's just out in theaters, so you may want to watch the movie first before jumping into this conversation. Having just finished the previous six films leading up to this film, do you feel fine that this is largely kind of as some of the other previous show, uh, previous films had been kind of another standalone story. It's not necessarily as tied in to like the last two, which definitely kind of had that that thread uh, with Solomon Lane kind of connecting the two and his organization leading to the apostles and everything. Uh, it felt like they were starting to kind of build this this thread of these films that were going to kind of continue. This like. Nothing is connective as far as bad guys or anything. It's just same characters other than that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm really glad you want to start there because I think there's another angle that we have to put in there. That not only is this a standalone film from the the previous set of films that McHugh and Cruz have put together, but it is also giving us entirely new IMF history that has never been mentioned before, right? This yeah. whole idea that all the members of IMF, all of the agents, are somehow former criminals who have been asked to make the choice about doing good and becoming a part of this secret organization and, you know, saving the world, uh, or what, going to prison and serving time? Like, that's an entirely new layer on this, uh, you know, IMF cake that we've never heard anything about. Yeah, same thing with the other element that we've never heard anything about is, I mean, as we see in a scene in the Director of National Intelligence's office, uh, this is Carrie Elwes who plays that particular character. He has no clue that the IMF is a thing. And <laughs> it's not until the rest of the group is kind of having this conversation in his office. But he's just like, I'm the director of national intelligence. <laughs> what do you think that I shouldn't be knowing here? And well, so it's kind of funny. It's like there's <laughs> Senate hearings in past movies. Like, shouldn't the DNI like know <laughs> that this is happening? If rogue senators know like that, that was. I thought a comical bit of narrative building. Yeah. 
it's it is interesting that the, some of these things that they are building into this particular story at this point to kind of flesh out the background and and it right. does kind of give us a little more of a background and a history with Ethan himself as far as like his choice that that led him to this that kind of ties him directly into Gabriel in his past. But but wait a minute, what was that choice? What was the choice? Can you walk me through that because I don't understand it. I honestly, after seeing the little flashback, I don't understand what his choice was. And that's that was a little difficult to fully understand uh, through those flashbacks as well. My understanding is that there was a situation with a with a woman and Gabriel, and Gabriel killed the woman and Ethan. I I, I couldn't figure out was it like somebody that like they had he and Gabriel had been working together like i wasn't quite sure of that exactly what had happened or was he and the girl working together like why was he pegged as a criminal who had skills that the government could use and that's what i didn't quite get from those flashback sequences i thought that was supremely unclear i i i didn't and and i, I should say i'm i'm gonna like I, I probably nitpick a bunch on this movie and i want to say as an umbrella statement i had an enormous amount of fun in this movie but there are some story issues that i i feel like we got to point out because there that's what we do on this show so that being said that was one of the things that i did not understand because i could make the case that Tom Cruise, that Ethan Hunt took the fall for a murder that was committed, and that's how the government uh, started using that against him, that it turns out they're not trying to paint Ethan Hunt uh, as a, uh, you know, as a nefarious uh, person, that he was always good, but he took the fall for something else, like, uh, or your point, that he was already working with Gabriel, but that was, that was unclear to the point that as a setup for the mechanic of making the choice you know, when when that comes later for um, Grace, that becomes something I have to reconcile in my head. I felt like I have to work too hard at at what what they're trying to set up with Ethan. And so I didn't I didn't love it. And I'm not entirely sure it was necessary. Ethan's flashback. I'm not entirely sure it was necessary. Did we really need the setup that Ethan had had, you know, run around with Gabriel years before? I mean, it happened so fast. I, in my head, I feel like I could just excise it from the movie and it would still be uh, an enormous amount of fun and less confusing. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess that's tricky to think about because there definitely is this built in element of a past relationship between Gabriel and Ethan. The fact that Ethan thought he was dead. I'm, I I don't know. I guess the other element to this movie that obviously is is pretty well known that this is part one of two i'm assuming that in part two we're going to get a little more of the resolution between the story of the two of them because at this point it has been kind of unclear as to what exactly is going on with all of this i just i don't really know why it's important at this point that we have this past relationship between hunt and gabriel that hunt thought he was dead that he's you know saw, saw a ghost all that sort of thing like why is this a thing that is important in this particular point? And uh, so I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what happens when we see part two next year, as far as that goes. As an aside, the original release date of this movie was a ways back, right? This was one of those pandemic shifts. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Big time. That makes part of this movie really interesting that I want to get to, which is the idea of the entity as this rogue AI that 
Had this movie come out when it was originally supposed to come out, it would have been prescient for what we're dealing with in the media right now with ChatGPT and large language models. And we have the the Pentagon theorizing about what a rogue AI would be out, would, would do in public. This movie released right now almost feels too late. Like you can kind of see how they were actually looking around the corner when they wrote this movie and, and we're going to release it had it come out its original date, which I think is really interesting. Maybe that's only me, but I actually <laughs> really enjoy the interpretation of the AI in this movie. And to your point, like that I, I don't understand what is going on between Gabriel and the AI. What is his relationship with the AI? Um, I I am very much looking forward to part two when that gets revealed and resolved, and I hope that it's satisfying. But the implementation, the sequences where we have the AI actually erasing Gabriel from live CCTV footage is extraordinarily cool and satisfying for me. Like, I really, really enjoyed that bit of nerdery as as a bit of fantasy technology that uh, actually feels pretty pretty grounded, given what we're living through right now. It was really interesting. And just the, the idea of the relationship, and, and to your point, I think that the the idea of putting a story together, building this um, this sentient AI that would have, I don't know, if they were shooting it in 2020, I would have imagined that the release date would have been summer 2021, maybe? Uh, um, yeah, actually, I'm looking right now. Uh, previously set to release July 23rd, 2021 uh, would have been the original release date. And then I'm assuming part two would have been... Um, right now. Uh, no, in 2022. Um, oh, yeah, so okay. Because so the next one is 2024. Is yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. So we got we got completely uh, everything pushed back two full years, really. And I, I don't necessarily even think it was pushed back two full years, but I feel like Tom Cruise, like one of his things, even with Top Gun, he kind of wanted to hold on releasing until they knew they could really have, um, you know, theaters at capacity again, because they wanted, you know, of all the people, he is very much the... Uh, I don't know. He seems to have become like the advocate for quality, big blockbuster movies that have to be seen in the theaters. Like Tom Cruise somehow seems to have like the entire weight of the survival of of, of movie yeah. theater going seems to now be on the back of Tom Cruise, or at least he thinks so, which is fine because I, I enjoy it. <laughs> I don't think he's necessarily wrong. And I enjoyed it. And to the point, like the theater was at capacity, like it was jammed in our in our theater of course limited run single imax theater in our in our multiplex so uh that that seemed pretty obvious but it it was extraordinary to his credit and the i the ai element of it is it was really interesting to me and i was thinking about that too the fact that this would have all been coming out like right on right before all of this stuff really took place and now that it came out right in the middle of it i don't think it necessarily felt too late at all i actually felt felt it it fit kind of nicely right in the middle of all of it because it's so much in the conversation in so many capacities so many parts of life right now and i think that it definitely fits and you know it's it's relevant and i i guess one of the things that i was kind of surprised with this film i i wasn't expecting necessarily that they were going to take an angle with the villain that felt somewhat relevant to where we were in society right now 
Yeah. And and this is the this is an interesting, at least to me, an interesting reflection on kind of the state of technology and film. This movie is sort of meta in that regard. And I find myself a little bit handicapped in a conversation about what feels real and authentic in terms of using tech in movies and what is fake. Usually it's easy to be able to complain about, oh, that, well, I mean, that wouldn't happen or that would happen. This movie, I think, absolves all doubt that, you know, anything that they show on screen couldn't eventually happen somehow. Like, I don't, there's nothing in here that I want to pull out and say, well, that's ridiculous. That would never happen. Because, in fact, as a result of the movie coming out when it is, we're seeing so many sort of transformative uses of the technology of AI, not yet generative AI, or or, uh, general intelligence, AGI, that makes this movie sort of a pre-reality. And it is legitimately scary to see what the thing does in this movie. Yeah, it's like a giant Black Mirror episode. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a giant Black Mirror episode. So I just think, uh, you know, anybody saying, oh, it would never happen is just like, (laughs) they're just not awake yet. Because I I think as as entertaining and big budget blockbustery as this movie feels, it's also, as you say, Black Mirror and kind of scary. Yeah. And we've seen stories similar to this. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about, uh, I can't remember exactly how it came up, but um, Eagle Eye is kind of a similar film to this where the government had kind of created this AI that was, you know, tracking all this surveillance stuff. And, and, uh, you know, Shia LaBeouf was, (laughs) was uh, trying to escape or try, was, was being kind of guided by its hands to do something in particular. I can't remember exactly, but it's a similar type of story. And when you see things like, I mean, you already mentioned kind of the erasing of Gabriel from the CCTV footage, but even uh, more so the mimicking of Benji's voice when it's, when he's trying to guide Ethan through the streets of Venice to track uh, Grace suddenly the AI cuts in and takes over like that felt like the way that, uh, you know, we've been seeing AI releases of conversations between two people these days where it's, it sounds completely authentic. That felt perhaps like the most realistic thing that was going on with the AI in this film that I can see already happening. And it's just, it, they, I think they captured so many things in this that just felt so, um, like we're there in 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 many ways, and so I, I found that to be extremely uh, interesting. Well, I you know I went to a a, a conference and uh, to do another podcast for an information security company as a client, and one of the interesting things about that is I was told as somebody I should probably tell you this as somebody who is a podcaster and has thousands of hours of my voice floating freely around the internet that I should call my mother and tell her that we need to have a code word because there is a non-zero chance that she could pick up the phone one day and hear me telling her to transfer a bunch of Bitcoin to some weird account. And because she's my mother, she would do it if she heard my voice saying that. That is real today being used right now. And so like those kinds of playing on those kinds of fears in this movie, I think uh, they just do it in a big blockbustery exciting way. So I, I think it's actually, it's very timely to have those sort of horrors portrayed on screen. I think it worked really well. Yeah, that's uh, 
very interesting because I mean, we're, I'm already getting texts from AIs that are sending me messages, unlike the normal uh, texts that I used to get. Now they seem like uh, like an actual person texting me with questions or like, oh, I you know I can't believe that uh, that that happened to you or whatever like triggering in the hopes that I'm going to say something, but they actually sound like real people. And so it's, um, yeah, it's pretty frightening how far things are coming and how quickly things are changing, which I, I think just, again, fits into the scope of what they're trying to capture here in in a way that feels, I don't know, it ended up feeling a lot more realistic than something like Eagle Eye, where the AI suddenly would, you know, take control over a crane or something because it happened to have a computer in it. And it's just like, well, I don't know if it can quite go that far. But the way that they talked about how this AI was like going into these systems, leaving its fingerprint, and then coming out without having changed anything, you just know it's just absorbing information. So here's here's my question then back to you about the script. Um, because we both obviously got what I, I think they wanted us to get out of the terror of the AI as the big villain, right? Like, and and I'm grouping the AI and Gabriel as the big villain because there's a non-zero part of me that actually thinks Gabriel is a robot and we're actually watching Mission Impossible Ex Machina. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> uh, I but but my question is, does this movie respect me as an audience member or not? My Hunch is more not, because there is an awful lot of exposition dumpery in this movie. There are so many uh, close-up headshots of uh, political people and uh, talking about what is actually happening on screen and what actually just happened on screen that I found myself losing patience kind of often in the non-action-y stuff. Did you share any of that? I don't think that it, I I found anything that was that triggered me quite to the level that it did you. I do feel that it was the conversation in uh, the director of national intelligence's office. Uh, Cariel was his character. It was it was at the beginning, and everybody in the room <laughs> had like one sentence. It was like. It was like they had written a paragraph of exposition and they said, okay, we need to make this interesting. So let's just give each person a sentence and then we'll just bounce back and forth between everybody in the room, except for, of course, uh, Kittredge, who is kind of left as the surprise that he's actually in the office and he's back in the franchise. But I, I thought that that was funny and that ended up slightly being distracting because they were doing it that way. I'm like, nobody really talks this way like did they plan this so they everybody knew exactly which meeting. line they were yeah. saying and from an editing perspective there was very little use of leading audio so the cuts were all very hard between lines so somebody says something to the end of a sentence then it cuts to another head and clearly mccory just discovered dutch angles because the entire movie is shot at an off-kilter angle every headshot is super spy um, which was an interesting throwback uh, but to me that editing choice coupled with the camera choices made it a little bit funky and i I, it just felt strange. And I think that's what, I, what I'm what i saying when I, I found myself losing a little bit of patience, like mostly because what they were saying, I already knew. I found myself I, being feeling like I was a step or two ahead when they were, you know, going into full expository mode. And um, I, that is never a satisfying experience as a moviegoer. Uh, as much as going right in this movie, that I thought was um, dated. I didn't have an issue with 
the exposition in this film. I, I ended up feeling largely it was fine, other than the way that they structured that particular scene. One thing, though, to your point that I did uh, notice, and I felt a little more um, thumbs of the director in, in the process of production style is, and it was the same scene, it, but it was after the um, the the... I can't remember what the role of the person was that comes in that works with uh, Kittredge, but his aide, right? He was like his aide, right? Yeah. His aide comes in, ends up putting a gas mask on and gasses everybody. We've seen shots of that in the trailer. Fantastic uh, construction of that whole scene. Very cool. And then, of course, it's revealed that it's, uh, again, spoilers abound throughout this, but it's it's revealed that it's Ethan in a mask come to talk to Kittredge in this particular room. The conversation between the two of them, it was like I found some of the shots to be interesting. Like typically when you frame a, a conversation between two people, like you're intercutting between two talking heads, you have the one person looking screen left with their head off to the right to give the the space between their eyes and the edge of frame. And then you, when you cut to the other person, it's a reverse of that with their head eyes looking screen right with their head on the left. So again, there's that space in front of their face. It feels more comfortable and natural that way. And when you push their face all the way the opposite side, so where they're looking screen right and their face is on the right, there's very little space between their eyes and the edge of frame. It makes a more tense feeling. It just feels a little more uncomfortable. And Macquarie was doing that through that scene. And you had the two of them looking at each other, but their faces like were pressed up against the edge of frame. And so it kind of created this tension. But then he also started uh, crossing the line. And that's where, you know, if, if one character is looking to the left, you cut to the other one and they're looking to the right. So it looks like in your head, it feels like they're looking to each other. When you cut from one character looking to the left and then you cut to the other character and they're also looking to the left, your brain is like, are they actually looking at each other now? Or is it possible they're not even in the same room? Yeah. Yeah. It gets confusing. And he started playing with that as well. And then, but then he'd like cross the line and then everything, then all of a sudden, like, you know, Ethan would be looking to the right. Kittredge would be looking to the left. Then Ethan would be looking to the left. And then Kittredge would be looking to the right. Like he would keep reversing it, but all within the same scene. And I'm like, what is he doing here? Is is he doing this intentionally just to kind of create more tension? Because suddenly it started seeming like a confusing way to put things together. And watching that sequence actually made me remember how much I enjoyed very specifically the conversation between Ethan and Kittredge all the way back at the beginning in Brian De Palma's. Uh, film because the way that that De Palma constructed it had such interesting angles and such a strong way of kind of crafting that entire sequence that I found it to be so much stronger than what Macquarie was doing here. And I just didn't feel that that sequence carried as much weight for me. It, it just felt a little more messy than what I was used to. Well, I, I absolutely agree with that. And it made me think back to some of the interview material we had with Macquarie in, in you know, the last couple of movies that we've talked about. And one of the things he said is that he when he and Tom conceive of these movies together, he says, I want each movie to have a different look and feel. I want to make each of these sort of the fabric of each movie to feel like it's a different, like it has a different hand uh, behind it. And he was talking about in the context of having a different movie uh, because they had uh, different directors for so many of the the earlier films, right? But 
I was super satisfied with all of the different feel and tone that we had in the last three movies with Macquarie. This one uh, felt for the first time like some of those choices trying to, I don't know, um, ape De Palma uh, in some of the cool kind of noir techniques and building those strange eye lines to build tension it lost impact on me because it's done so much. First of all, that scene just alone in the DNI office that we're talking about is a long scene. Um, and so using those techniques with like all the different characters as they talk, it it's just loses impact when we finally get to Kittredge and Ethan. But whenever we get a group talking together, even if it's Ethan and the team later, it's all using some of these same techniques. And I feel like as a result, it is all a little bit watered down. I find a challenge to build my emotional sort of enthusiasm with the narrative because of the way this, the shots are constructed. I don't think it's fair to say that all of this came because of their delays with COVID and everything or the change in perhaps production style because of COVID. Like it seemed like, I mean, based on the um, the recording of, of Tom Cruise screaming at the crew, trying to keep everybody safe. That of course came out um, when they were trying to film with during COVID. Uh, it it seemed like production was going on as normal. Obviously, they were just kind of taking more precautions. So I don't necessarily think that we can fault um, or blame it on COVID that that the, they made these choices. It just ends up feeling like directorial choices and um uh, who knows maybe it's because they were contending with the idea of shooting two entire films back to back and so and not only that but the longest films of the series up to this point i mean this film was two hours and 43 minutes so it's a very beefy film and if you have two of those together that's five and a half hours of film that macquarie was trying to handle while he was putting this together i mean it's entirely possible it's just kind of create creativity overload of trying to figure out what do i do that's special here and it ended up kind of creating a little bit of this mess yeah i i i feel like that a little bit now i and and obviously i'm saying that just as a result of like just seeing the movie and i, I this is a little bit of a hot take and i i want to see the movie again Absolutely. And I want to see it in theaters because I, I love the big screen experience on this one. It's worth it. But I can feel where, you know, some of this falls. I also would love to see a black and white edition of this movie. There is something about so much of the way light was used and some of these crazy Dutch angles and the way eyelines work that make it feel like, OK, maybe we're doing an Orson Welles thing, right? Like maybe this is the thing that that makes this unlocks kind of some of the visual cues of the movie that I'm I'm missing. Frazier Taggart is the DP on this one. And, um, you know, we we haven't talked about uh, Frazier Taggart as a DP. This is pretty, uh, I think, pretty new. I mean, as as a DP, he's been in um, been in uh, like a unit DP before and uh, but not a a principal uh, that that, you know, is also maybe part of it. The look of it, I think, was strong. Like, I enjoyed the look of it. Uh, I, it would be an interesting one to see kind of in that black and white style. I think there's a lot of style to the production here. It was just, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful film crafted uh, well, and I, I definitely enjoyed the production. I think it's just some of the the framing choices, editing choices, the actual construction itself, where uh, some of it didn't quite work as well as in previous installments. Right. Before we get into the story, 
can we also just talk about some of the elements that they uh, that they did smartly say, um, hey, let's bring this element back from like looking at the previous six films, because there were some things in this. That I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool that they're including that again. Kittredge for one. Kittredge for one. Absolutely. Did you like the return of Kittredge? Did he work in this role where uh, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Where do we land with Kittredge and his place in this? I think the use of Kittredge in this movie was really smart. I really do. Apart from the mystery guest at the party in that initial meeting, which may have been a little heavy handed since he was so deeply in into the trailer of this movie, like we knew he was already there. I love that they didn't make him a mystery return character as uh, somebody from Ethan's past. He's just another workaday bureaucrat still at work in the government. And there's something so satisfying about that, that this just happens to be where their careers cross again. Might as well have just, you know, thumbs up something on his LinkedIn profile, right? Like, it, it just felt like such a natural, uh, smooth integration of Kittredge into this thing. Uh, I love that it was Kittredge's voice again on the tape recorder. So for me, the Kittredge bit just worked. Yeah, I really enjoyed the integration of him. And considering that he had a similar role in the first film where you're like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Yeah. Is he just a typical, like, working in the gray government employee? Like, they kind of kept it all there. Like, he still is basically like, I'm trying to get this thing because that's what we do as the United States government. We try to get this thing because uh, we don't want anyone else to have it. Yeah. And the only other option that he would remotely accept as we kind of come to at the end is you know the possible destruction of it by ethan if ethan could beat him to it it was a great way to bring him back into the fold yeah for sure uh, what uh, what else feels good to you about bringing him back from past films other uh, other elements i just, i couldn't get over how much joy this is such a small thing but i couldn't get over how much joy i got out of the fact that ethan hunt was doing uh close-up magic again <laughs> We lost that after the yeah. first film. And it's like, oh, my God, look at that. He's doing it again. That thrilled me to no end that he w that he did that. For sure. And and that, you know, and this this gets to one of the things that I think is going to be interesting to see and, and talk about, particularly in the next movie, is that Haley Atwell also has some nice close up magic skills. Uh, oh, and well, yeah. that was an interesting little handoff to me. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because that was something that in a way. I, and I don't know if it was necessarily a nod in any way at all, but just the idea that uh, Naya in the second film is also a thief that they recruit. And the fact that this is another thief that they recruit to help the team, I'm like, that's interesting. Like, I'm wondering if there's an element to wishing that they could have found a way to integrate Naya into the story better in that second film like they do here. Yeah, the, I, I think so, too. And it, it almost makes me think, you know what, that movie, we didn't quite finish with that character for reasons. And let's go ahead and imbue so much of what we get with Grace um, from what we originally intended to do yeah, with right. Naya in that last movie. Yeah. And and they use the word put pocket a lot. <laughs> I I don't feel like I'd ever really heard that word, but it's like legit. It's a word that they use. It's in dictionaries and stuff. Is it really? I didn't yeah. know it was a real word. 
I was the only person in my theater who laughed when he said, "You're you know you're a great pickpocket. Why don't you see how good you can be at at, at being a put pocket? Yeah, or something." And I laughed out loud, and I was the only person. I guess everyone <laughs> else knew that put pocket was a real word, but I thought they it's made it up word. in the movie. No, no, no. That Someone who puts funny. money or other objects into a person's pocket or bag without that person knowing. Like wow. it's, it's, I mean, it's in uh, all kinds of different places, but you can, uh, um, you know, find it in. Anyway, it's a thing. It's a you thing. You can find it wherever the put pocket put it. You can find it where the put pocket put it. Check yeah. your pocket. Um, one other element that I really enjoyed is that we have another sequence kind of like we did in Ghost Protocol where we get to see a sequence play out. And this is when uh, they're pitching to Grace to put on Alana's face and kind of go through this whole thing. And then e- Ethan is playing her brother. They go onto the train, they get the stuff, and he hops on the parachute and flies out of there. Before we cut to them saying, hold on, wait a minute. And we come back to uh, the actual moment. We realize that that was all just kind of like a visioning of what they were imagining. But it's exactly the same thing that that they were kind of thinking when Benji was wearing the mask and walking through the stuff. And it's those little bits that, um, again, we don't see that too often, but it's a fun way to kind of integrate that that um, visualization of what they're wanting to happen. Right, right. And speaking of other things that we've seen, uh, how what do you think about masks? How they used masks in the movie? I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it's it wasn't something that they held back on, like right out of the gate, we're seeing Tom Cruise wearing two different masks in that one scene. And then uh, we get the whole end with um, Grace playing the White Widow. And all of that worked really well. And they also did the machine breaking down again bit. And so that was fun. They they kept finding other, that which is something that happened in the uh, fourth film also. And so, again, finding these different things that they could do to kind of, you know, things that worked, things that didn't. And so I, I really enjoyed the mask work here. I thought it was all very fun. Yeah, me too. The original crew is, uh, here I say original, but the, the crew from the last several movies, obviously Ving Rhames is still with us, Luther Stickle. Um, there is, in terms of his overall arc, Luther is with us through all of the things, all of the major set pieces. And then at one point, he out, he offs himself effectively, right? He says very clearly, I have to go. I, I'm out. You're, here's the thing I'm going to do. And then I'm out of here. I have to go be a hermit in the mountains in a completely secure location where I can work on this code because... That's who I am. I'm a, monk, a techno monk. And then he's gone. And I, the way he said it, I thought was interesting because it conveyed to me that there might be something more like they were trying to over-dramatize his departure. Did you get any read out of, out of him leaving? Did that feel more important than maybe it, it, the narrative asked for? Uh, I didn't read it that way. I read it that, um, you know, he was basically stepping out of this film so that he could make a dramatic reappearance in the next film once he kind of had everything ready and they were ready for him. You know, I kind of just read it that way. I didn't I didn't read like, oh, there's something heavier happening here also. Okay, good. Well, that's good because I, I feel like that's okay. I can go with that. Luther will be back in the next movie. Yeah. And yeah. we're all okay. We're all okay. Uh, okay, Simon Pegg is blonde, hardcore blonde. He's bleaching. 
that might be the the biggest news in terms of our tracking of hairstyles across Mission Impossible. Uh, and I haven't brought up Tom Cruise yet, but I will. So uh, Simon Pegg is back. And I do love one of the things that I like so much about this one is that they actually have a conversation about who's the bigger nerd who can write code. And uh, and I thought that was really satisfying because that was a complaint that I had in the past discussion that we now have essentially two keyboard jockeys on the team. And um, this time they actually talked about who's the better keyboard jockey. And uh, so that was I thought that was great. Well, I think it ended up, you know, perhaps they realized that there was a little confusion because it honestly felt like they were trying to straighten it out a little bit by saying Luther is the one who's really the computer savvy guy who can figure all of this stuff out. You know, and he's always, though, in his little room, his space, his van or wherever it is doing his thing, making sure that things work the way they need to connect to the right satellite, whatnot. Benji, on the other hand, he's also very technically savvy, but as we know now, he's a field agent, and he gets to do that stuff, but while in the field. So he's running around defusing bombs, using all of his technical know-how, but really it's just the infield sides of things. And so I think that they actually put that in there as a specific way to kind of help delineate between those two, which I liked. I liked that they actually included that. Yeah, I think it worked. Uh, and Rebecca Ferguson is back, Ilsa Faust. Now, before we started talking, you said you have a theory, I believe courtesy of your wife, about Ilsa Faust. Would you like to open the Ilsa Faust discussion with that? Yeah, I I mean, Ilsa, you know, is um, uh, just a fantastic addition to this franchise who has been with us since the fourth film, and every time has been an interesting source of complications because she always seems to be coming into the the story. And again, this is something that, again, they continue here where she comes into the story adversely to Hunt, or at least to his side of things. And uh, which I, I, I just love that. Like, that's the thing with Ilsa. She's going to be part of the story, but um, she's working against Hunt. And in the start of this film, she comes into the story as somebody who took this key, and now she's hiding out in Namibia, and and he has to go and take it from her uh, before all these assassins do. Of course, it turns out that they're happy to work together, and we find all that, which is great. And I love having her in the story. Rebecca Ferguson is a huge uh, benefit to this franchise. She's been great ever since they introduced her. And it was... It was uh, very upsetting to see what happened to her in this film. And really, I mean, honestly, I think that the theory that my wife has is largely just her own because she so badly doesn't want uh, Ilsa to be dead. And, and her her theory is that uh, that they are setting something up with her, faking her death um, as part of this whole project to to somehow find ways to kind of get past the entity, which seems to, as they say, knows every possible outcome that they have already thought of. And this is something that they're trying to set up. I don't necessarily know if I buy into that. I think that largely, and my wife has said as much, that a lot of it is just because she doesn't want to believe that um, that Ilsa wouldn't be part of the franchise anymore. But yeah, I mean, she was great in the film, and I'm, I am curious to see where they if they are going to go anywhere with her or if this whole thing was just if it is just a, a sad tragic ending for Ilsa in this franchise. 
Well, yeah, I think it's really question uh, like it's a really good question. And that that brings us also to Haley Atwell's grace. I, I think with the interesting part about Ilza, just to wrap that up, is she is credited in Dead Reckoning Part Two so far. It might have just been a duplicate movie change title in IMDb. Uh, where everybody's the same across both movies, and we just don't know because it's still technically listed as in production. Um, but uh, it does make me wonder what is going on because there was a lovely little bit of intimacy. Like we have the the brooding Tom Cruise on the rooftop. She comes out and gives him a nice hug early on in the film. Um, there's, uh, you know, they had their lovely gondola ride. Like there's just a lot of interesting little romantic tension between them. But also there's romantic tension between <laughs> Haley Atwell and or Grace and Ethan, right? Like it's just everything sexy in this movie. So I think the uh, the Grace bit, I love her addition. As you talk about Grace, let's talk. Let's let's include your thoughts on that romantic angle, because I think that's interesting that you're reading it that way. Well, I read it that way just because of the just general intensity between the the two of them. Like they do a lot of close talking, (laughs) you know, holding one another's arms. There is something about this awesome stunt scene where Tom Cruise is doing the driving through Rome and it's amazing and and they're handcuffed together and so they just they exude chemistry for me in this movie those two um, as much as Ilsa and Ethan did when we first met her in at the opera and she was in that amazing dress like that that's just something they do really well and I think that handoff has been has been solid for me so when we have the grace meeting where they actually give her the choice right where the three of them are making that case now bringing it back around to the end to the or to the beginning of the movie when they or when they were saying you know ethan had a choice they've been talking about the choice and then they formally present the choice to grace that to me read very much like Paramount has to have plans for what Mission Impossible looks like after Tom Cruise is no longer the central action hero, even if he's still peripherally producing, even if he's still playing Ethan Hunt, the director, whatever happens, they need a plan for who that's going to be. And it kind of felt to me like they were trying to amp up the drama of that scene, the impact of that scene to make me feel like she, Grace, would be an able substitute for Ethan Hunt on the team. And we actually, from that point, get growing pains for her. We get her struggle to make some choices. We get her struggling in crazy stunt sequences where she has to dodge a falling piano. Like, they have a falling piano in this movie. Uh, Like, all of that, like, felt to me like they were really trying to amp up that level of intensity to the point that we would believe She's going to be the post-Dead Reckoning poster child of this franchise. That's my theory. What do you think? Interesting. Uh, well, I did not uh, read that that way at all. I just felt like, as we were talking about earlier, the whole setup for the IMF and how people are recruited. I mean, the film, we didn't talk about the fact that it opens with a guy delivering food to 
to Ethan in kind of the shadowy room. And it turns out that this person actually is a new recruit and he passed his final test or whatever. I'm not exactly sure what was going on with the food delivery. Maybe he just, maybe that's how Ethan gets his food. It's the new recruits. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. But anyway, this guy passes his test and Ethan welcomes him to the team. And it just felt like this film was very much kind of a, a, a for us to understand how people are brought into the IMF. And so, I don't think I necessarily read it that way, but uh, I don't think that your read is necessarily wrong. Like, I haven't thought about the meta external story implications more, the like production side of things, Paramount Pictures implications of thinking about what do we do next, especially, and, and who knows? I mean, we've already talked about the fact that Jeremy Renner, when he was brought in, was kind of brought in. Uh, with the uh, assumption that he was taking over the franchise from Cruz, only to have Tom Cruise jump back in because he stopped jumping on couches. And they <laughs> like may have been down this road before. Uh, right. Maybe <laughs> they had been thinking about bringing Grace on as the new hunt. Of course, then with all of the releases, uh, if anyone's been watching Tom Cruise on any of the red carpets that he's been on, especially since uh, the new Indiana Jones opened and Harrison Ford is doing all sorts of crazy stuff in his 80s as the character, Tom Cruise is like, oh, God, I hope I can be doing this. I'd love to be playing this character until I'm 80, just like Harrison Ford is. And suddenly now they're all like, oh, yeah, he's going to keep doing this. We're not stopping at all. And so... <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't reading it, but maybe it's because of all that stuff lately. And so I just read it as we're now bringing an actual person on as opposed to Ilsa, who is always MI6 and kind of danced with Ethan and, and you know, helping them out, but never really became an actual member of the IMF. And again, last in our last conversation, we're like, oh, maybe she'll finally be IMF. Nope, now she's disavowed IM, uh, MI6. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I think that this is just them actually bringing a new team member on. At least that's how I read it. Yeah, I, I totally fair. And uh, it, it'll just be curious. I think I'm definitely like your wife. I'm just sort of fantasizing about a post-Cruise, post-Ethan Hunt MI movie. And uh, I, I actually, the, the whole point of that is, I think it would work. Like, I felt great watching Haley Atwell in this performance, and it's just uh, awesome to have her back in, or to have her just continuing to explore these action roles, because, again, huge fan of Agent Carter. Great to see her in the uh, Doctor Strange, the little bit that we got of her in Doctor Strange. Um, so I, uh, I'm a fan, and I think it'd be awesome to see if she could carry this thing. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see um, after Dead Reckoning Part 2 to see where they go. Two, right. Yeah. Uh, we do have Palm Clementif is, uh, uh, speaking of a Marvel crossover, Palm Clementif uh, is uh, in this movie as the mysterious uh, assassin. Not that mysterious, pretty flamboyant assassin. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My wife um, really didn't like her character at all. She said she just reminded her of... Harley Quinn, and she just felt like she was just this over-the-top crazy character who'd wear makeup on her face and was just crazy and just loved to kill people. And I can definitely see that read. I didn't have as much an aversion to her. I thought it was fine. And I suppose for this franchise, having somebody who felt a little different as the sidekick assassin, it didn't bug me too much. I, In fact, I thought she was quite fun. I loved how angry she'd get, how hot-headed she was, like when she was chasing 
their them in their little tiny yellow Fiat in her giant military Hummer, the way that she would just get so angry, <laughs> like everything. Awesome. Like I found her to be quite funny, but there were some moments where I was like, okay, yeah, it's it's kind of that crazy killer character, you know? Yeah. Do you remember, this was two years ago, when she and Simon Pegg released their black and white sort of auteur music video to trash talk the other actors in the Avengers for their fantasy football game? Uh, vaguely. It's still on YouTube, and it's really, really worth seeing, because I think that that was released as part of the like underground promotional timing for the the movie's original release, because at the end, she says in French, my team is better than yours, and it pulls out, and you have the other because they they were there they were all together they have Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise and and Rebecca Ferguson all in the frame and I thought it was just really really great it made me think about that I I think she's uh, I actually thought she was a great addition and I do see the absolute parallel to to uh, Harley Quinn but I also really like Harley Quinn so I'm okay with that yeah uh, we do have the White Widow Vanessa Kirby is back in this movie and she gets masked. It's an interesting character in both films, kind of this black market arms dealer. And her position in this film, it's an interesting one. It ties very directly in to Gabriel because she has this deal with Gabriel to trade him the key. I enjoyed the character. I enjoyed that we got to use her as the masked person when um, when Grace has to play her like i thought they had some fun with all of that it left me with questions like how did uh how did grace know her bank her banking information i don't remember if that was something that they had talked about and so i i i don't know i guess it was okay i i yeah i i like the white widow in these films but she's never my favorite part of any of them when I have her in them. Yeah, I think making the White Widow a more vulnerable character in this movie, I didn't care for it all that much. Like, I, I really preferred her, the the mysterious kind of, um, you know, hovering above it all character. And this, you know, using her in this way, I thought was sort of diminished the mystique of what the White Widow was. Um, also, the way she was so deeply condescended to by our man uh, Kittredge, uh, you know, like uh, bringing up that he had a deal with her mother just felt like like such a, a thing. Like, hasn't the White Widow established herself as a domineering enough presence not to be spoken down to like that? And so that was I just kept thinking about that stuff. Now she just became a pawn in the mask game. And. I, I don't know how that how well that's going to sit with me. Again, that's one of the things I want to see it again for. Well, that was one of those elements also that I'm like, huh, uh, was there more to the relationship with Max and Kittredge in the first film that tied into her kids? I don't recall that really being a thing, but that is kind of what they're establishing. So I'm like, what sort of deal did he have? Like, I, I don't know. It, it made me wonder if there was something that I missed in the first film. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that whole thing. So it all works, but I didn't think it was as strong as I wanted it to be. Because again, they're tying this whole thing to this arms deal going on with Gabriel. And again, that scene in her party, where we have that meeting of, uh, you know, all of these different sides kind of coming together, 
And that's where you're getting this sense that Gabriel himself might be a little afraid of all of this because he's being so manipulated, but he's going along with it because he's afraid and he just has to do kind of what he's being told. And she has to do what she's being told and everybody's afraid of the AI and what the AI is going to do and all this sort of stuff because it knows everything about you. It's interesting, but there was something about it that I also kind of was struggling with. I'm like, okay, I'm not exactly sure that I'm getting everything out of this that I want to be getting out of it. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I think that's, that's it for me. So, there, you know, apart from other characters, let me just say out loud that Shea Wingham is in this movie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, there's a, there's also a police, like, uh, fugitive moment, uh, storyline in this uh, that didn't, doesn't really stand out to me uh, in the movie. Yeah, I wasn't sure what they were, because they were working for, uh, essentially, Kittredge and Denlinger, but they also somehow always knew where they needed to be. And I wasn't sure, like, is that just because Kittredge is involved? And he, like, there was something about their involvement and ever-present nature. Again, going back to past films, something that they did kind of pull from the fourth film with the Russian police kind of always there uh, dogging uh, his heels. But it it never quite worked as well in this particular film. Yeah, it's never. It always felt like, oh, poor Shay Wingham and friend. Like, they're just <laughs> not going to be remembered in this movie. I already knew as I was watching it that I'm going to watch this movie in five years and, and think, oh, man, Shay Wingham was in this movie. <laughs> well, it is one of those relationships because his he definitely has this character arc over the course of the film as he, at the end of it, kind of comes to this realization. As his partner, uh, Degas, told him, it's like, maybe, is, maybe he's doing these things because he sees something that we're not seeing. And right. by the end of the film, he doesn't shoot at Hunt as Hunt flies away. And uh, that's kind of the change in his character. And it does make me wonder, in the in part two, is there going to be perhaps a, an element where uh, those two are now also kind of helping Hunt? Yeah. You know? I mean, he is credited. He and uh, Greg Tarzan Davis. Yeah. Uh, Degas. So, all right. Uh, can we talk about the major action sequences? That's why we go to these movies. Well, yeah, but before we do, I just want to jump back to one of the strongest elements of this was just a couple of the character beats that they were developing. And and the two that I really noticed that stuck out to me were um, Luther, which it wasn't big, but there was just kind of more character growth than he'd been given, kind of talking about like their past and everything. I felt like, oh, okay, I'm getting a little more sense of Luther's history here that I really enjoyed. But really, for me, it came from Grace. And I loved the way Haley Atwell portrayed this character stuck in these situations. She'd been a thief, but she's now thrust into this world she completely doesn't understand. And the way that she was reacting to everything from in the car sequences and how she couldn't stop (laughs) driving the car in a circle, like moments like that, where (laughs) it's just like the sheer panic of a character to where she was like, she wouldn't let go of him as the piano was about to fall on their heads. And, um, but just like even quiet moments when he would say, are you okay? And she's just like, no, no, like. It, it just felt so honest. Like, her character's journey through this film was such an honest journey. I just, I was amazed at what they did with Grace and how how they kept her character so believable throughout. It just was, it was such a thrill to kind of watch what they were doing with her. 
I totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, okay, so major action beats. I man, it, there's a lot that happens in this movie, but I think the first major. What is the first major action? Like chase? Is that that's the airport? After, of course, the submarine in the beginning, that's kind of the prologue. No, it's actually uh, Namibia when he goes to track down um, Ilsa in the desert and the oh, Haboob. Oh, good point. Yes, in the Haboob. That's like home territory for you. <laughs> it just felt like another summer. Just another summer in Phoenix. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, that was. I thought that was pretty good. I actually like des- the desert sequences. I've come to really have a fondness for blowing sand in these movies, uh, and it was nice to go back. And that that does get us to the the big gun and Ilsa faking her death. Uh, that was. I did have that moment where I thought, oh, she's dead. Maybe they just did a, a little Ilsa rug pull on us. Of course, I'd seen her in other sequences in the trailer. Of course, she wasn't dead, but I was already deeply into the movie by that point, so I thought that was good. We do have the bomb in the airport sequence where, uh, you know, uh, Benji has to do the puzzle box to get into the empty bomb, which I thought was fun. I really had a good time with that. I love watching him run around the luggage mechanics. Well, and just, you know, again, speaking to just the nature of what they're doing to construct scenes that also tie into the story. And this is something that I I found really gratifying with this film that I don't always feel with action films. You get into a lot of action films where they have to fight and it's just a fight because they just have to fight. And, you know, somebody has something and the other person wants it. And so they're just battling for it. And we certainly have some of that here, like when they're fighting on top of the train at the end. But when you have sequences like that, that it's an action sequence, but it's tied so strongly into the story because while, you know, he is being, they're being pursued through the airport. You have Benji having to deal with this bomb. You have connections to the AI and the way that the AI is tracking you and learns about you and like all of that stuff going on. You have footage being erased and changed both by Luther and the AI. And like there are so many things happening that it just, it felt so gratifying and it didn't feel, feel like another boring action sequence. It felt like we're, we have a lot of things going on here that tie directly into the story and the theme of what they're saying and everything. And it actually makes it interesting and engaging as opposed to just, okay, now they have to fight in the airport until one of them walks away with the key. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. That is a very much a foot chase, but we do get the first of our major Tom Cruise running sequences, very wide shot, Tom Cruise running the roof of the airport with all of the awesome ribbing of the the roof, which looks really cool. Very dramatic. Tom Cruise running. 60-year-old man, I think, when he when they shot this. Maybe 59. He's 62 now. Extraordinary. Extraordinary feats of running. The only thing with that run that, that made it a little less exciting for me, one, they showed it in the trailer, so I knew we were all already going to have that as soon as I saw the wide shot of the airport. I'm like, oh, this is where he's running on the roof. Yeah. But yeah. the other thing about it is that that was one of those action beats that didn't go anywhere. It's just like, okay, now I'm going to run, run, run away. And that was well, it was d- because they needed the comedy of Shea Wingham saying, where is this guy? And meanwhile, he's outside running. You see him roof. above him on like, the roof. Yeah. You see him above it, which was fun. And then it gives him an excuse to run on just a cool looking location. Like, here, oh, that's yeah. just lo- yeah. location porn, right? That's Absolutely. at this point. That's what we're getting. We do have more location porn with more driving that gets us into um, uh, the 
Rome driving sequence. And we have two cars. They first they're in a they're in a cop car and a motorcycle, and then they're in a BMW uh, with no doors. And then uh, they're in the little Fiat, which has been dramatically tuned and electrified uh, to give it a lot of juice driving that car around. That was fantastic. Yeah, I like how he had on his phone, he could search for different IMF safe things like safe house. This is the safe car. And yeah. it's it's basically a James Bond <laughs> car in the IMF world. And so it's just got extra juice. And it just made it really funny because he has to figure out how to drive it because it's so small, has such a different feel. She has to figure out how to drive it. They have to drive it with their hands cuffed on the hands. So it makes it impossible for him to sit in the driver's seat because his left hand is cuffed to her uh, right hand. And so it just, they're constantly reaching. It made it so funny. Like, it this was exactly going to my point of, like, it's not just another car chase scene. What can we do that's different? We've got them handcuffed, opposite hands. Either she has to drive so they can sit normally, or he has to drive and their hands have to be awkwardly across each other. It made for such a fun driving sequence. And they're in this little tiny Fiat. So they found a way to make that so exhilarating. Like, absolutely, it might exceed the train escape as my favorite scene of the film. It was just such a thrill. Um, I'm I'm not quite sure. I haven't decided. I want to see it again to determine. But those two sequences really stand out as the highlights for me. Well, and in the spirit of they don't make movies like this very often, part of the thing that we've talked about, uh, you know, these big stunt sequences is that when you movify the stunt sequence, it sometimes uh, obscures the challenges of making the sequence, right? And this is one of those. Like that car, they legitimately transformed that car. That was a perfectly drivable, electrified Fiat with an amazing amount of torque, and they're driving it on these Roman-like cobblestone streets. And to hear Cruz and Macquarie talk about like what it took to make this sequence to drive on those things because you you plan as much as you want to actually put the car where you want it to go, and those cobblestones have an idea that is different than yours, and it puts the car someplace else. And that challenge of making that just levels up the scene for me. Like, that's one of the things about the marketing that I love so much, because so much of it is pulling back the veil of how hard they work to make this movie, and seeing the final picture was extraordinary for me. I I love it. To, to your point about the gags, like the fact that she is able to get out of the cuffs and cuff him to the handcuff, that he has to walk around Ethan Hunt in this level of movie essentially doing, I don't know, what, like a Marx Brothers gag, it felt like, like walking around handcuffed to the steering wheel in the middle of the street, I thought was awesome. I I felt like it was good. They, they pitch perfect humor for me. Yeah, they've, they've found a good way to blend humor in through a lot of these sequences like that. Absolutely. Yeah, we get to what is the the next major? I, of course, want to get to the jump. Well, the next one's probably the escape from the party. Right. In in Venice. And that leads to, of course, Ilsa's death. Oh, right. Oh, right. So we have the scene where where he says somebody is going to one of the two is going to die. And, um, you know, once again, proving Gabriel is ahead of every everyone. It's another great chase. Great fight. Not one of the biggest stunts uh in the film but certainly fascinating yeah exactly but and and i think what this one is is again it really leads to 
the AI, just more story, because we're seeing this is where the AI takes over Benji's voice and is guiding Ethan all the wrong ways. And so he's going up all the wrong alleys and streets and isn't there when Gabriel confronts Grace. Uh, but luckily, Ilsa is so that she can save Grace, even though Ilsa ends up dying because of it. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, I don't know, it, it works really well. It's not, again, it's not as uh, thrilling a stunt sequence, but it does allow some some great um, knife fighting because Gabriel is a knife man, as we learn. Yeah. Uh, we definitely get to see a lot of knife fighting between him and Grace and then him and Ilsa as Ilsa brings her sword out. And we get Ethan stuck in that little tiny uh, alley. I, I don't know. Is, is that an alley at that point? A pass through? I'm not even sure, but it's he's stuck there with Paris and her uh, her right hand man as the two of them are are taking him on in an incredibly narrow space, which allows for an interesting scene construction for a fight in an incredibly tight space because they don't they don't have the room to kind of swing as much. Yeah, right. Which I thought was a very well orchestrated fight. All of everybody, all three of them would have been dead. And that's what makes these movies great. Like so much smashing of heads into bricks and windows and ugh, awful. Um uh, but but uh, to your point about the fight on the bridge, Isai Morales is really bringing it as an as a, uh, you know, in, in these stunt sequences as a knife guy. I thought he was really fantastic. It didn't, you know, it just he, uh, you know, watching him talking about making this movie, he says, you know, when when Tom Cruise does all this stuff, it, it just kind of makes you want to learn to do all this stuff. And uh, so uh, it just felt really authentic, like he really worked it to to look good swinging knives around in these fights. So he was good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so anyhow, we get to the train. Yes. And all of the mechanics to get on the train. That's the big thing at the end. We've got to get to the train. Uh, they built this train. Uh, hearing Macquarie talk about it, he said, when we came together, uh, Tom and I came together to talk about this movie, we said, what are the things we want to do in this movie? What's the one big thing you want to do? And Tom Cruise says, I want to jump a bike. And Macquarie says, I want to crash a train. And that's where this final <laughs> sequence comes. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the bike thing we've known about for a long, long time. It's some of the just... very... What? That's just so what? funny because it makes me think of the the vultures. This is such a weird place for my head to go. But the vultures in the Jungle Book, the Disney Jungle Book. Hey, what do you want to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do today? You know, just like oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe blow up a bridge. Oh yeah, maybe I want to jump a, jump a bike off of a cliff. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a good Tuesday. <laughs> That's that is just a delightful way to make a movie, uh, and I, I thought I thought it was really great. The um, so we've seen the marketing of the bridge stunt for a long time, building yes. this bridge, right? Um, and the story of Tom Cruise not being satisfied with the first jump and doing it six times. Uh, to get it just right, the drone footage uh, using drones to capture the li uh, you know line of sight to follow him down. It just was all really great. When it got to the point of him driving up that mountain, I was on the edge of my seat just waiting to see the final picture. Um, it, it I thought it was beautiful, um, and it is the best use of CG augmentation. It, to my eye, when we know that the effect itself was practical and he's on this giant ramp, but they just got rid of the ramp, but he was really on the bike, right? That's the thing. That's the thing that made it just really special. And I think they had to do that because otherwise you would think this whole thing is fake, right? Of course, he's not going to jump off that off that 
thing. Not in this day and age of filmmaking. Of course, it would all be uh, comped. Well, and that's obviously why they released that whole behind the scenes. So you can actually see it's an interesting strategy because obviously we did that uh, with the past films where we see, oh, this is really Tom Cruise hanging off the side of a plane. Like they're showing us these behind the scenes um, clips as kind of teasers to get us excited about the upcoming movie. And in this one, as you said, they showed us pretty much the building of it, figuring it out. They talk about how long it took, all that sort of stuff. And it does make you excited. And it does give you a sense of just how real it all is and how crazy Tom Cruise is to do these sorts of things. But is there is there a drawback, do you feel, to having seen it? Like, when I saw the whole thing with him on the side of the plane, and then I went to see the movie, and it was like the first thing that he does. I'm like, that was really smart, because they showed us to that, like, we knew exactly what happened, we know it's a real stunt, and then they get it out of the way at the beginning of the movie, and uh, then they we're seeing all new stuff. And in this film, it's saved for the end. Did you feel let down that, oh, I've already seen this before, I know he's going to go up that mountain and jump off the cliff? You know, I totally get your point saying that it was you felt a little bit jaded earlier in the in the beginning when you that you had seen that. It didn't hit me that way. For me, I was just eager to get to that stunt. I was just ready for it. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see it on the big screen. Even though in my head I knew everything that went into to making it, I just wanted to see the final thing. I was just excited. I didn't feel uh I didn't feel spoiled in that regard at all. Uh, I just wanted to celebrate it. And same thing with the train. And I would say like the train sequence that that you know Macquarie said there there isn't a real surplus of trains just waiting to be driven off a, a cliff so we built one from scratch it is a completely bespoke mission impossible train that they created created all the fixtures <laughs> inside to shoot on this thing so that they can then run it off the cliff and uh that even knowing all of that I did not feel jaded at all watching the the last sequence. I had seen the train fall off the cliff into the gully without any effects added to it, like any of the explosion stuff or anything like that. But I'd seen the whole thing, and I still didn't feel spoiled to the effect. To me, that that didn't that uh, I mean, just the way I guess I'm wired about it. But I, it it worked. It worked as intended. I, I guess. In the scope of things, it's not a huge issue. It's no different than watching a trailer and seeing pieces of the trailer and knowing something is going to happen because you've seen it. And to that end, I mean, I certainly saw plenty of things in the trailer for this one that kind of clued me into where we were going with things. But yeah, it, it's definitely a thing where I I can feel sometimes. And this film in particular, just from watching elements beforehand i felt like oh yeah i've already seen the jump oh yeah i've already seen the train crash like i felt like i i knew where things were going because they'd kind of already shown just a lot of clips of things in the trailer yeah well like i said i get it but i again the final composition of the the train sequence and the jump uh just worked so so well for me uh the train in particular the end as the cars are being dragged off the of the remaining train are being dragged off the track into the into the culvert like that <laughs> we were sitting in a row and we were laughing hysterically as Tom Cruise and uh, Haley Atwell are climbing their way up the in- interior of this train because I didn't know how else to express the emotion that I was feeling. It was so bonkers, so over the top and so exhilarating all at the same time. It was just uh, total. I, I was I was bought in as clumsy as the rest of the 
scripting was to me, the things, the editing of the human shots to me, I, I just was 12 years old and loving it. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I should just say, you know, uh, Macquarie, um, you know, he recently did an interview over on on the Letterboxd uh, site where he talks about a few of his uh, films that um, that he was kind of pulling from from uh to kind of draw for that train sequence and two of them that really stood out uh one should be pretty obvious it's buster keaton's the general yeah uh, because of course you have a fantastic sequence in that with the train crashing off a bridge that they really did for that film but also uh, you know speaking to our upcoming season of john frankenheimer's the train which they also studied in incredible ways and um exactly what uh, Frankenheimer did, Macquarie really took to task to see uh, to, if he could try to figure out you know, how to do some of those things, because he found that to be such an effective film. And we'll be talking about that one this coming season, so definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Man, Andy, I think we've, have we covered it? Have we done all the good that we can do today? I, I think so. The only other note I had is uh, Lauren Balf is back doing the score and just fantastic work with the the score here <laughs> my son my son walks out of the movie and the first thing he says is did you think at some points the music was too exciting <laughs> <laughs> apparently i did not notice this but apparently there's a sequence where like it was just people talking and the music cue was uh over the top energetic action music that i just didn't even i was too man i was too um into it and so uh i didn't notice it but apparently there are a couple other folks we were with said the same thing like there were some parts of the music that were just too much just too much lauren back off so i thought that was funny that's funny i didn't yeah. i didn't feel that but um one one last note angela bassett was apparently going to be in this um i would i assume she would have been in that opening meeting as one of the people having that conversation yeah but because of covid travel restrictions she ended up not being able to travel for it so they ended up casting somebody else Mm. interesting yeah. well oh well that's that that's that well we will be right back but first our credits the next reel is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson music by jacob pietras Oriel novella and eli catlin Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Okay, Andy. Sequels and remakes. You don't really have much to say here other than the fact that next summer we will be getting Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, which we will also cover as our July member bonus episode. So um, looking forward to talking to, about that one the summer of 2024. Other than that, based on Tom Cruise's uh, all of the conversations he's been having on the red carpet, we should be able to expect more of these as he continues working the next 20 years at least. <laughs> <laughs> he is the entity. I want to start a campaign just calling Tom Cruise the entity from now on. The movie just came out yesterday as we're recording this. Did it, has it won any awards yet? 
It has been nominated already at the Hollywood Critics Association Mid-Season Awards, but this was for the most anticipated film. Oh, what else yeah. is, is in there with it? Indie? I'm sure. Indiana Jones? Uh, the other most anticipated films, Barbie, Dune Part 2, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Oppenheimer. I could I could have called that, yeah. But All you right. didn't. I didn't. So, you had to do so it. So you failed. All right, I'm broken. And we don't know anything about the numbers yet in terms of performance, but what did they spend on it? Do you know? Yeah, this was uh, a very pricey film. In fact, on the list of most expensive productions, um, unadjusted for inflation, it is currently coming in at number 14. So a very expensive film that we have here. Um, a lot of the expense, it, I mean, it ended up costing $290 million, largely due to having to stop and start seven times, changing locations, dealing with public health, health restrictions, global supply chain issues, and keeping the cast and crew employed and housed during all of those lag times and quarantine periods. So thanks to COVID, this film ended up costing a ridiculous amount of money. As we just said, it, it's pre-opened July 10th, officially open July 12th. And uh, yeah, we'll have to see. We'll just keep tracking this and see where this thing lands. All right. Well, I'm a 12-year-old boy. I'm totally into it. It was great. I had a blast, even though the script was weird. There were some elements with the story that I did struggle with, but uh, largely, I also had a great time with this one. So... Well, we'll be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for our first film kicking off Season 13. The first series is going to be the 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series, and we're going to be talking about Edmund Golding's Dark Victory with Betty Davis from 1939. Mmm, those eyes. I've never taken orders from anyone. As long as I live, I'll never take orders from anyone. I'm young and strong and nothing can touch me. Darling, poor fool. Don't you know I'm in love with you? Are you afraid to burn, Michael? Are you afraid to die? What a relief to know that you're no better than I am. Anything to strike back at me. But don't do it this way. What do you want me to do? Stay alone in my room and think how in a few months... Judith, you hate me, don't you? Oh, I hate you so much and for so many reasons. I hate you for not telling me the truth. I hate you for letting me hurt myself with your head. I'm so ashamed. I guess I was born out of my time, Miss Judith. 
I should have lived in the days when it counted to be a man the way I like to ride and the way I like to fight. What good's riding and fighting these days? What do they get you? You're making love to me, aren't you? I'm as good as some of them that's been playing around with you. They're all afraid of you. I wish I was in their boots. What then, Michael? The things I've wanted to say to you ever since I first laid eyes on you belong to me and no one else. Okay, Andy, Letterboxd, what are we going to do for Letterboxd? Uh, our uh, profile over there is uh, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. You can find all of our rankings and reviews. We each have our own. And this, therefore, is where we talk about that. Is this a nine-star movie with three beating hearts and maybe a kidney? Well, that sounds like you just went to some alien Star Trek world. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> you know, I really enjoyed this. I did not like it as much as probably the last two films. I had a great time with it. But I, I think for now, I'm going to give it four stars and a heart. Yeah. And weirdly, that is where I am. And largely because of the clumsiness of any place where there isn't action. Like, the four stars is all for the awesome action. And it's minus a star for clumsy script, weirdo editing, uh, and too much of a commitment to the Dutch angle bit. Like <laughs> they just, they're doing it. They're, they're, it didn't come out as Orson Welles as much as they thought. So that's, uh, that's where I am. But it is a, uh, glowing four stars. And that heart is purple. It's amazing. <laughs> Well, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox. You can get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. So what did you think about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into our Discord community and jump into the Show Talk channel where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. What do you got? I went to the bottom of the barrel because I was curious uh, who out there isn't a fan of this. And I, fa I actually have two ones. Uh, they're both fairly short. Uh, do you mind if I do two? Oh, no. Go ahead. The first one I think is a little more serious. There's a half star by Mike's Flicks. This is not a film. It's half a dozen theme park rides connected by scenes of clunky exposition. It's impossible not to be impressed by Tom Cruise's stunt work, but I was more impressed when he just acted in films like Magnolia. I've heard people say that it's films like this that keep cinema chains running, but if that's true, then I'm not so sure there's much worth saving. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. That is not a happy one. No, the other one is a half star by Andrew, who... <laughs> It kind of ties into the whole theme of the movie. If you asked AI to make a movie like Skyfall. <laughs> yeah. And we prove that that would work. That's what happens right now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I have I have Griffin Newman, who just gives it a heart, doesn't do stars and says more like Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part fun. <laughs> uh, uh, low, low uh, barriers to entry on that one.
<laughs> right. Thanks, Letterboxd.